Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Robert Thurman, and he is, uh, among many other things, he's a scholar as well, an expert on uh, Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. So um, I'd like you actually, uh, Robert, welcome to Arash's World. And I'd like you just to present yourself before we dive into talking about your wonderful book, your most recent book as well that you've written. But how would you describe yourself in any way you like? Okay, well, I'm a great grandfather of two, of one and a half girls, because one that wasn't quite born yet, one of them. And then I'm a grandfather of about eight kids and a father of five kids. And, um, and uh, I'm a retired professor of uh, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at Columbia University. And I'm still therefore as an emeritus, I'm still somewhat connected to them, sorry. And um, I am, um, uh, you know, writing and um, I also, my main work, the remaining work now, besides finishing a bunch of big translations from Sanskrit and Tibetan, is um, I'm still the head of Tibet House US, uh, the Dalai Lama's Cultural Center in America, with the mission to try to preserve and promote Tibetan culture, because it's endangered under the Chinese Communists in Tibet. And uh, we have also a country retreat place called Menla Mountain Retreat, where we offer Tibetan healing practices, very, you know, a little humbly offer that. And um, to show the to show off Tibetan cultural wisdom, you could say. And that's sort of my love now during my I just had my 80th birthday. And this book, birthday. the book that the book that you read are reading uh, was um, published on that day, thanks to the kindness of the editors. They picked that day. And I'm quite happy, actually, somehow now I'm facing the ninth decade. And uh, I had a note from the Dalai Lama who's in the middle of it at 86. And he encouraged me to keep keep going at a slow and modest pace, not to have like, a heart attack or something. Wonderful. So I'm trying to do that. So that's introducing me. And, and uh, well, let's say all my motives have to do with um, I'm a disciple of Greta Thunberg, let me say. I consider her Mother Gaia, Mother Earth's oracle, and a transmitter of the pain and uh, unhappiness of Mother Earth to see the suffering of the, of, the, of the animals, not just the humans, but all the animals on the Earth in the sixth great extinction. And so I'm very dedicated before I, during this ninth and if necessary, 10th decade to uh, get us to do the radical changes we need to save the change the fossil fuel domination of our politics on the planet and and um, globally. And um, I'm very, very strong about that. And I do feel that my sort of happiness push and cheer up push, which is what really the book is about. It isn't about Buddhism. I don't want to convert anybody to Buddhism. I'm, not, I'm a half-baked and half-witted Buddhist myself, although I try, I keep trying. But um, I, I really want people to cheer up because I feel that the reason that the planet as a whole is uh, that the different societies are not really doing it is that people are too defeatist. They think it's impossible. And leadership and, and, and ignorant and stubborn leadership persists in the destructive behaviors uh, leading us in the wrong ways in terms of war and consumerist greed. And therefore, we are not reacting with the 
like the house is on fire, as Greta says, and putting out the fire, which we should be doing. So that's my main drive is that, you know, I don't want to convert anybody to anything except to happiness. Mm -hmm. That's my only aim, actually. Uh, and this is, grandpa. The this is the book, <laughs> the most recent book. It's a wonderful book. I've, I've started reading it and I love the wisdom is bliss. So it's not ignorance, it's wisdom. That is important yeah, to note. Right. <laughs> and, and you actually had me here with four friendly fun facts. Friendly yes. fun facts. Those are three words that are very important. And I love how you are combining them here. And oh, the yeah. other thing I am quite impressed with is just like that, that joyous energy that you have and that comes through in your book and oh, the, the language. And it's not, it's scholarly, but at the same time, it's very accessible. And uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm someone who was uh, uh, interested in Buddhism since I was a teen. And I loved it. And uh, I, however, I think a lot of the terms I misunderstood. And reading through your book, I realized, well, there's some things that uh, when you were younger too, you misunderstood as well. So I wasn't completely yes. off. But <laughs> the whole issue of the of nirvana and uh, the whole issue of the ego and attachment. And yeah. I understood the four noble truths, but the eightfold path seems to seem confusing to me and how yeah. and why and what is the yeah. ego. And so I went on this basically quest and I tried to actually deny the ego and say, yeah, ego is wrong. Ego is bad. Yeah. I want yeah. to escape the ego and escape yeah. life. And yeah. there was a point in my life where I said, I want to go to a monastery and as a teen, idealistic teen, and I want to just like find enlightenment. But then yeah. I thought, no, if I want to find enlightenment, I want to find it here in the world. Yeah. Part yeah. Of it. And yeah. so I decided not to. <laughs> and, uh, and then I drifted off. And there was, I kind of, there's also Christianity. There are certain parts of Christian Christianity that I like. I there are certain do. parts I don't like. And I love how, you, how you're calling Jesus sweet Jesus. And to <laughs> me, my relationship with Jesus is a fun guy. Somebody yeah. who is playful, who turns water into wine and yeah. who hangs out with kids and prostitutes and poor people yeah. and sick people, who's yeah. a rebel. And I was also impressed reading that the Buddha, and I hadn't thought of this, but the Buddha was also rebel because yeah, he stood out against the people. And yeah. also the idea of Christianity, was Jesus a Christian? Technically, I think he is not. And he would yeah. oppose too many things. Jesus was a rabbi, of course. Yeah. And so, so the idea of religion being um, all about sin and suffering and pain turned me off. And that was actually the thing also with Buddhism, because when it's like life is suffering, it's like, I don't know. Yes, but then I'm reevaluating it. And I went another okay. path and I've gone the path of Freud and psychoanalysis myself, kind of my meditation was that. And then okay. I realized I got to a point where I said, isn't this exactly what Buddhism is talking about? Yeah. And then I saw the connections between the two. So mm -hmm. it's quite amazing that the ego I was, my misconception is that um, you actually don't hate the ego. It's just the ego is like a small child within us that uh -huh. is confused, that is ignorant, that is misbehaving. And yeah. that there is a self that is higher than that, that can actually yes. expand. Absolutely. <laughs> that's a great journey you're describing i think it's wonderful so how, how does that interact with the 
what you learned in the book. Does it, how does that fit in a good way or how does it go? In a wonderful way. So, um, for example, yeah. I, I, it's kind of actually a bit uncanny because I was, I was taking a walk a couple of weeks ago and I was thinking about the idea of nothing, something and everything. And yeah. I thought like, well, nothing comes, uh, nothing can come out of nothing. And that's, that's something we say, but that actually can mean both things. That can mean nothing can come out of nothing or nothing can come out of nothing in the affirmative. That is possible that nothing comes out of nothing. And that yeah. to the thought of everything. Now, everything includes, does it include nothing? So if it includes nothing, then everything is also part of nothing. And therefore, there is no difference between nothing and everything. <laughs> and some of those words I read in uh, similar paths, I read in your book. And I was quite amazed. And can we maybe talk about that? About the sure, difference sure. Well, nothing, that's, very key. that's the key point. That's actually the very key source, you know, of love and compassion, which is what we all want and what, what is reality, actually. That's mm -hmm. why wisdom is bliss. When we come to know that. And the way of coming to know that is to realize that nothing is nothing. Mm -hmm. And it is not included in everything except as the word for that something that isn't included. Because it's not there. And therefore people can't and don't need to fear going to nothing. Because there's no there there sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why the word emptiness has often been in, in East Asian Buddhism. Sometimes it's been confused with nothingness. But in the Sanskrit language and Tibetan language and so forth, there are different words for nothingness and emptiness. And emptiness is the space where everything happens. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Exactly. And so nothing, it's everything. Nothing, yes. nothing cannot contain everything because nothing isn't there. But it's sort of, and it's a good concept, however, within everything, because it is the concept for that which doesn't have a referent, mm -hmm. you know, because it's not there. And the, the mistake made by the nihilists who are not the only kind of materialists, but unfortunately they're the dominant kind of materialists now, who think, who, who are the, at the anchor, you know, they're like the authority of the dominant materialist culture. And therefore they lead to the sort of recklessness of our culture and our destruction of nature and our moral recklessness and ethical recklessness by thinking that there's, that we can do things and there'll be no consequence to what we do because we'll be nothing mm -hmm. because nothing is sort of underlying there. And actually I just learned something really new talking to people, uh, you know, in sort of um, talking about the book, you know, because I've been doing that now since it just came out and I came up with some new thing, you know, you know, it's natural that we gravitate to nothingness because we look out in the sky at night and we see these little pinpoints, of stars and planets, you know, that we that we have a model of in our mind, and then or we go into having a thought experiment in our mind, and we think of being made of atoms and molecules, and then we think of the atom as a dark space with little things zipping around in it, and it's pretty mystery how that turns into a nice soft cheek <laughs> with, a, with a dimple and a smile like you you nicely have, and. Uh, and how can those little zapping things in an empty space? So we sort of think that if, if all if everything stops and in our experience, that we'll just be that dark space. You know, we naturally think that. And um, but and and therefore we expect we sort of expect to reach a state of unconsciousness at death. And that's what death is. Mm -hmm. And we therefore fear it in case we're enjoying being alive. 
Although we seek it, on the other hand, when we're finding it being alive to be painful, really painful, people automatically seek that because they think that's like that's like getting anesthesia in the dentist chair, you know, which you want at that time. You don't want to have to sit there while they're drilling on a nerve. So, so the thing is about about that though is therefore the realization that nothing is in fact nothing. There's another thing that could be invisible that could be our destiny. And what is the other thing that's invisible other than darkness? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where, where you're unconscious. And then I realized, well, of course, transparency is invisible. For example, right now you look to your left and you look out that window and you see whatever is outside there. But the glass itself is not visible to you because mm-hmm. it's transparent. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you were installing it and looking from the side, you'd see a pane of glass. But, and you know it's there in a way but you don't see it when you look at it because it's invisible because it's transparent. Mm -hmm. So instead of dark matter and dark energy being the glue that holds these little zapping atoms together, which is the final desperate last stand of the materialist physicists, (laughs) 97% of nature is dark energy and matter, but has to be, or we'd all, everything would fly apart and has to be, but we don't really know what it is because we didn't see it yet. But instead of that being the case, it could be that we are bathed in a bath of infinite energy, which is transparent to us, and we're also made of it. But we, we wrongly think, no, this coffee cup here, this, this teacup, this tea mug is not transparent, and I can't see through it, and it's solid. You know, and never mind that it's made of atoms that are mostly penetrable you know, by x-rays or whatever. Superman can see through it, but I can't. But the point is, the idea is we're all potentially Superman in that respect. That we could see through everything, or we could choose to see it as it presents itself to an ignorant person, because just because we would learn to see through it, that wouldn't mean that everybody else could, and we want to relate to everybody else. So it's, then, then we get into the area of where actual life, not just nirvana, but actually, not just clear light of the void, as we like to call it, clear light of emptiness, not just that, but life itself is inexpressible. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we can, we know Arash, we know you're a guy, we know you're in that room there in Vancouver, we know that you, you've been seeking things since you were a teen, you explained it beautifully, said we know all that, and we could have a hundred different status and you know, analyses and descriptions, molecular, chemical, medical, or spiritual, whatever, none of them would add up to the inconceivability that is a rash. <laughs> you know, life itself is beyond anybody's description. That's why we love poets, because they give us new angles that we never thought of about something, but they never exhaust the thing. They just <laughs> grow on a vector, like across a facet. If someone wrote a poem about Arash, even that would not be the final word. There is no final word. That's a great thing. And therefore, we can talk a lot about Arash, if you follow me. So Nirvana is just the same. It's the reality of everything, and but itself is inexpressible. And it doesn't exclude even the ignorant vision. It embraces it in a loving and liberating way. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we access that experientially, of course, is just like how do you be Arash during the day? You don't look up on a computer all the statistics about a rush. You just get up and you do your thing. 
and he's not the same person he is now than he was a few years ago. So there's that yeah, well, transformation we go through. Yeah, you wow. can see in some senses you are the same. In some senses uh -huh, you're exactly. different. Yeah. When you see a picture of yourself doing something or a video, when you're a little kid, you can kind of remember, sometimes you can remember what you were doing and you seem to be there then when you remember that in your memory. And so in one way we are, in one way we're different and we're different every minute and we seem the same. In other words, words are always only giving us a partial picture <laughs> type of thing. And, and, the, and the trick is how do we become open to the experience of being completely inconceivably present in every magnificent moment, taking a little encouragement from so-called enlightened people <laughs> like Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and, and uh, Moses and Baba Hillel and Krishna and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, taking encouragement that there is a way of being where you're completely present everywhere and yet specifically present just here in interaction with others. And when you feel that way, then you're completely competent mm -hmm. to make everything nicer here because you're not trying to do, do, manipulate it in any way that might be unpleasant to anybody else. So that's a wonderful possibility. You know? and, and one of the things I've, I've learned is that uh, the perception we have of ourselves is yeah. often misconceived. It's a misperception. And so it is often driven by anxiety or trauma or, or ideas we have that we are, but that is not congruent with who we actually are. And for yeah. me, that kind of alignment, when that yeah. happened, when I stripped away all the things I'm not and then I, I got something that is completely different and what I see here is more like a, a faith in myself where I usually used to doubt myself or didn't love myself and so as a teen that's the phase I was going through because uh, my family is dysfunctional then I was living in Germany I was a foreigner there and so it felt like I was uh, out of place where, where, where did you come from where were you in in Germany we um I'm, I was born in Iran but I grew up in Germany you were born in Iraq oh, yourself? Oh, how Iran, yeah, Iran, yeah. And so it was just all this. Oh, Iran, you were born in Iran. So you, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> which I don't, that's all I remember. You, you were there, you traveled through Iran. Yeah, I traveled there Iran. and I enjoyed, I enjoyed it a little bit, although I felt people were a bit unhappy with the Shah. At the mm -hmm. time, and those times that I, I drove through, and, and they're still unhappy now. So it's uh, it's <laughs> it's something that continues, unfortunately. But yeah. um, just that that idea of like we're often like limited by things, and we identify with things that is not really yes. probably representing us, and that could be religion. And the idea you mentioned blind faith, and I completely agree with you because when yes. people talk about faith, they often are talking about blind faith. And that is not yeah. something you want. And faith yeah. is um, kind of Buddha-empowered faith. That's what I want. And that's well, what I'm finding. Well, that means Buddha-empowered sort of means reasonable. Exactly. You know, in other words, using your inference. For example, if you use your inference by, to realize that you've been unconscious one-third of your life all the way from birth, which is because you were sleeping for eight hours out of 24 very often. And that's one third of the day, right? Approximately, sometimes more or less. And, but in all those times when you, your mind was nothing, nothingness, it was in nothingness in the sense of being unconscious, except when you're dreaming, uh, then, but you didn't disappear. Mm -hmm. You didn't fall into nothingness. Mm -hmm. so, and, and not only that, but every night you felt better the next morning. 
pretty usually. You know, you're like, oh, it's a new day for our relation, off you went. And that means that there's some energy that was invisible in the universe that came up and filled up the tanks in all your little cells <laughs> and your brain. And, your and, and, and it's also, we, we and so inference by inference, you can understand that it's this transparent place, which is not nothing. And actually, there's some abundant energy that, that sort of made you feel better. And so, you know, I want to go back to what you said was so interesting. You said you got to like yourself and you stopped disliking yourself. And this is very key. It's not just religion. It can be science also or secularism or a political ideology. Mm-hmm. Human beings' minds is such, works, and language work in such a way that we can get a fixated idea of Arash. Mm-hmm. He's really good or he's really bad or he's this or he's that or the other. And that fixated idea then fits in force on, on an arash that has infinite potential, actually. Mm-hmm. And then often then, then in the social situation in human history, the, the authorities in different societies, they use religion or they use science and they oppress everybody. Well, you're just what we say you are and you have to be our slave and you go die because we don't like the people in the next country or next tribe, and you have to do this and that, and you can't have fun because then you're using your energy instead of working for us, you're having fun with it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and so the whole thing is to avoid these fixated ideologies, whether religious or secular, that imprison us in some limitation that we are actually living, we are more that. Yes, yes. And and we're we are when we're free, we will tend, but even but then that self that is more than any particular fixated thing, we can we we have to be responsible ourselves for its kind of multiplicity. And that, you know, in faced with situations, we can have impulses and drives that would make it worse, and we have ones that will make it better. And so we do need still in, in the process even of liking. We can still, as you know, who said, the great Zen master actually in San Francisco said, I love the way he said it in English. He said, well, of course, everything is perfect, but there's always a little room for improvement. (laughs) I I really like that. That's sort of how it is, you know, and I think. And so freedom is the basis of being being a cheerful Arash. Yes. And being imprisoned in this and that is always stressful, and there's always a, a problem about it. But one, yeah. one of the issues is we always live also on autopilot. So it's like I, I see people who are like worried about things that don't matter. I'm one of them as well. I, I was one of them more than I now. Now I'm I feel more liberated and I can respond yeah. to things yeah. in different ways. And I can be overwhelmed by these ideas and the stress and so on. Or I can say, no, I have faith in my own abilities and I am fine. I'm going to get through this and yeah. get through all yeah. these challenges. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of shift that is so liberating and that idea of freedom i can directly relate to that and it's like uh and i I love these uh, idea of of buddhism where you say mountains are mountains and they're not mountains and they're back to mountains and i feel i went to that transformation (laughs) because um there was a time where everything was was not fine then uh, i went through and then i went back and basically, I do the same things. My actions are the same. I say the same things pretty much, but I feel differently inside. My relationship with all everything oh, around me has wonderful. changed. 
has shifted. And, and that kind of like, it's, I, I think like enlightenment. The thing is, when you say first they're mountains and then they weren't and then they were, mm -hmm. right? But then once they are the second time, it's a little different. Yes. Because you're open to them not being mountains. Yeah. Or the way you, the way you relate to them is more relaxed. You let them yes. be mountains. Yes. You're not trying to make them mountains, only mountains and always mountains and my mountain and just that mountain, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it relaxes. That's not mountains. Once mm -hmm. you see through them, they become transparent in some time, which happened with you, mm -hmm. then you're more relaxed in hanging out. In the yes. Mountain. Yes. And it's it's uh, we want to always be right when you or your ego is kind of small. You want to be right. And being wrong is the worst thing that can happen to you. But then yeah. when I went through that process, I would admit, okay, I am wrong. And it felt very liberating. It actually felt very good to admit uh, it, that. It does. It still yeah. does. It can. It is, and that is like, I don't have to be right all the time. And I don't have to be perfect. And that idea of, of uh, a perfect life or perfectionism, I think it's misguided. I like the, the, the quote you, you gave us. And so it's basically, I like uh, uh, another quote I read where you do everything the same way you did, but your feet are slightly above the, uh, the ground. So a couple of inches above the yeah. ground. And that, that's how I feel because I wake up in the day and I, I feel blissful and joyful regardless, oh, regardless of what and it's it's just when when for example i take nature walks i pay more attention to things that i didn't hear before like birds yeah, or, or oh, looking at trees or ducks yeah. and so <laughs> I, I i think the idea is kind of similar to plato i think of the uh, the cave where i feel like i was able to step out of that cave and I like to give the, we have a hamster, so I like to give the idea maybe of a, of a hamster cage, and I'm the one who managed to escape. But then when you come back, and I always want to come back, then it's it's kind of hard to transmit that to others, except leading by example, perhaps. But it's yeah. it's it's kind of a bit challenging to to talk well, about I mean, that. So you could write you could write your own wisdom is bliss book. <laughs> I'm working on it. Yeah. Me, please go ahead. I am no. working on it. Yes, um, no. The, the idea of enlightenment, too, the enlightenment, um, again, yeah. I misunderstood that, but it, light could be, is, is light, bright light, but enlightenment is also a, kind of a liberation of feeling weightless, kind of like yeah. the unbearably beautiful um, um, lightness of being where you feel light. And that's, that's I feel lighter. And that is okay. I think, a part that... It's I didn't understand in terms of enlightenment because I thought this flash of light would come. It hasn't happened. And uh, I yeah. actually I like to be more a bodhisattva if if that's possible. Yeah. Of like, you know, sure. if that should happen, I want to make sure everybody else is fine, you know, and just like right. and but is is that a um a reasonable conception of, of enlightenment? Am totally. I yeah totally. well, you know, in that line, what what you see this issue of that's another thing that I'm sort of trying to, to figure out, still working on to get it more and more deeper. You know, it's like you when you look at your face in the mirror in the morning, when you shave or you whatever you do, brush your teeth, and you see Arash in there, another Arash. And when you're a baby, maybe at one point you reached at the mirror when you were little and you tried to touch that person you saw through the window. And then you clunked into the mirror surface. And then, uh, and there are some, you know, there are many stories like the lion who was tricked by the fox into wanting to fight with the vicious lion at the bottom of the well. 
and he was roaring at himself and reflected in the pond. <laughs> well, and finally the fox tricked him to jump in and attack the one there to get rid of him. He was a mean lion, so he got rid of the lion that way. And we have a dog who barks at himself in the, we don't put any mirrors on the ground because he never stops. And he barks at himself and it reflected when the light is a certain way in the window, you know, in a transparent door, you know, a glass door. And he endlessly barks at that Pekingese that he sees in the door. And, but, but we don't, right? So that means that you see something and you see it in a, in a, in a distorted way, like there's some other Arash over there. Mm -hmm. And even left, right is reversed and all this. But, but you correct it without thinking. So you know that's just a mirror reflection, although you don't see it that way. So you can simultaneously see it wrong and know it right, simultaneously. And so the enlightenment is defined as being still engaged by free, free, freely with things that you could see through if you wished. You don't have to be engaged with them mm -hmm. because you are beyond just being light, you actually are transparent to yourself and you are simultaneously identifying with the other person and everybody you're empathetic with the whole universe actually it's it's such a huge it's it's such a huge thing when you try to describe it it's really huge it's inconceivable but it is but the mirror analogy is the best one because it's like you see it and at the same time it's not there it's like you see the mountain but you also know it's not the mountain mm -hmm. only and what that does is frees you to observe it much more deeply, even empathetically, like a CAT scan observes the condition of your body by merging with the condition of your body. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so that's a really, I think that's that's a that's a that's almost an incredible thing. But they, oh yeah, but the reason I launched into that is that the key concept there, you know, the the famous phrase "clear light," mm -hmm. the clear light of vo voidness and everything, which I still use, but I never write it now as two words. I write it in one word, as you notice in that book, it's written clear light, mm -hmm. because the point of it is the clear part, not the light part, because light, when we normally think of it, is opposed to dark, but transparent is beyond the duality of light and dark. So when you look through the window into darkness outside, you still don't see the window, you just see the darkness outside. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you, it's an object for you in that sense, uh, but you see, but, but, and you see through it. You know, the, you still see the, tra the transparency thing, you still interact with it. And if there's a bright light outside, then you see objects revealed by the bright light. So the point is, the transparent thing in another way is not that satisfying, because maybe when you're enlightened, you don't actually see yourself being enlightened. Hmm. Maybe you just, you're just everywhere in everything. And then, but somehow weirdly capable of interacting with any particular thing. That that desires your interaction. Mm -hmm. This is this is and that what I'm talking about now is something we can't conceive of. That means inconceivable. Mm -hmm. But apparently that's how it's described. You know, for example, in the Buddhist translation community nowadays, there are people who have had awakenings, and they are completely anti-enlightenment as a word. They don't like it. They don't want to hear oh, about it. It's, okay. it's all awakening. It's all awakening, and the Tibetans. Uh, and the word in, in Sanskrit, Bodhi, or Buddha, which is all Buddha means, it's not a personal name. It means both awakening from a sleep, but also it means blossoming like a flower into like a seed or a bud, you know, that was one thing, and then it blossomed into some 
something else. And um, then and they translated Buddha as Sangye in Tibetan. Sang meaning awakening from sleep and Ge meaning expanding, mm -hmm. you know, becoming magnificent, becoming infinite or something like that. So, which is actually a really good word for enlightenment. But the reason that those translators don't like it is they think the enlightenment, the Western one, was it means the Western 17th century thing when people began to look at and observe nature beyond the dogmas of the Catholic Church in the West, you know, and they actually were helped by Islam at that time, who brought back the old Greek thing to them through Andalusia, and they had their renaissance, you know what I mean, because they'd been dark ages, Europe was so backward, you know, and they think they're so great, but actually they were the most backward bunch of drunken weirdos that you can think of. And so, so the point is that they think that's bad, these awakening people, you know, they want to awaken to some, and they're, they're too much thinking that nirvana is somewhere else. And you're going to awaken and then the world won't be there anymore. So nobody can bother you. And oh, well, at least I'm not hurting anybody. You know, well, I've, I've abandoned my, they don't want to think I've abandoned my beloveds, but they were, you know, they'll find something else. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's, you know, that's, uh, so we're engaged in that discussion. And the point is, it's both awakening and enlightenment. And we, the whole, the whole modern thing of looking at nature and not being controlled by religion to accept only dogmas, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Only something in one language, only something from one supposed absolute thing, you know, that's only one of them, you know, like, like, that, you know, Vishnu is only the only thing, you know, Allah is the only thing, Jehovah is the only thing, you know, that, that's where it gets, you know, he doesn't even like it he or she or whatever that is, you know, the ultimate power, the ultimate energy, the ultimate love energy in the universe. So, so anyway, that's an important thing, you know, I think. But, but it's about being right. I mean, being converting to this is the true religion. I am right and you are wrong. And it, it yes, comes down course. to that. And it's a very small-minded view. For me, yes. it's like religion is is love, where you can't force the other person to love that's you. Right. It has to come uh, from right. your own accord. And we're that's not right. seeing that. And it's we've seen throughout history where the ideas right. are, 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 are good, yeah. but the way it's implemented, it's, it's, right. it's horrible. In a way, you can say that... Uh, you could say that the great founders, mm -hmm. they did not perceive a religion, they perceived reality, mm -hmm. and they said it was good, it was al-Rahim, you know, to use the Arab, you know, compassionate, it was, uh, you know, you know, empty, the, the Buddhist slogan is voidness, compassion, indivisible, you know, like or voidness, the womb of freedom, you, you can translate voidness as freedom, freedom, compassion indivisible or freedom the womb of compassion seeing freedom as something like a membrane a nurturing energy transparent energy space wherein you can be completely open to the to helping suffering lessen suffering in others in yourself and in others and uh, and that's not a religion actually that is a, that's a that's a scientific claim that that is what when you when you really can observe your own experience to the fullest Without impose, without imprisoning it in some preconceived idea, it will be goodness. It will be good. It will be happiness. It will be freedom. It will be bliss. 
So therefore, and knowing that is called wisdom, and therefore wisdom is bliss. And it's just dogma-driven. And this is this is what I like about Buddhism, because there's much less of it, or or in, in many cases, you well, have more freedom, or there isn't freedom. It's not a dogma yeah. in Buddha's case, because yeah. like a scientist, long before the, the good side of modern science, Buddha said, well, I know everything now, and I'm really happy, and it's really great. But you know what? My saying that will not include you in it by itself. Mm -hmm. So I can't really describe it to you because it's inexpressible. But I can encourage you only that you have the ability to understand it yourself. Mm -hmm. And the way you do it is you expand your understanding and your intelligence, because you have that amazing human intelligence. And, and, and the key thing is don't just believe what other people say just because they say they, they look cute, or because they seem like a big shot, mm -hmm. you know, or they can burn a bush. <laughs> just because they're burning bush, you know, just because they're a burning bush. They, well, okay, who are you? Well, I am what I am. Well, great, but how, why should I listen to you? You know, like you can talk to the bush, then the bush has to give you a good answer. You know, the, anyway, never mind. I, I don't and, want and just the idea of the original sin and Adam and Eve, and I, yeah, I'm just like mean. baffled by that because that's they're mean. doing the that's right mean. thing. They want wisdom. And so why do they get expelled? Why not embrace them and say, you did well? They didn't get expelled. It's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story that they made up in order to be able to boss people around and make them feel that their suffering is deserved, mm -hmm. and therefore they should just be a slave to the social order. Mm -hmm. And they, they say that God wants you to. And so they they imagine somebody who is mean. Yeah. Really. Yeah. You, know, you know, God is not mean. God is nice. Yes. You know, why would God want to, you know, God spoke to Buddha, actually. And he said, look, tell people, I try to do my best, but I just I'm not omnipotent. And they have their own responsibility about their experience. And we can all and I'll try to help them. And you should please help them and tell them when horrible things happen to them, that since there's no omnipotent person who did it to them, that they some bad people might have done something to them, but they have their own part in it. They put themselves in the way of that person. They they can work it out, you know, they can leave. And actually, this brings us up to the big thing that's in the book there, underlying that everybody runs into, and that's the issue of death. Hmm. What is death? Everyone thinks that's the worst thing, and they're so scared. And once they are scared of it, they think someone tells them something about it, and they think, okay, I'm going to go there. They have my ticket. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. <laughs> and the ticket is either I'll be nothing, and that's, well, not that cool, because I won't have ice cream. I won't have Nauru's feast, you know. You know about Nauru's feast. I don't, you know. Yeah. And anyway, I, I won't have that. But never mind. At least I won't be choking to death or starving, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll accept a sort of, you know, medium and aesthetic future, mm -hmm. I, you know, because I imagine it's the future. I'm lying there like eternally asleep. That's the name of all the cemeteries, right? And that's a modern one. And the ancient one is, well, I've been miserable all my life, but at least I kept repeating the name of somebody else and they'll take care of me later. Mm -hmm. That's what the religions tell you. Yeah. Whereas the final thing is, you, if you know that you, you don't die and instead you still hang out, you're going to wake up just like you do it every morning, but, but you'll wake up in a different body. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you know, you better be know how to do that. Do you know what I mean? So you better be nice now, so you'll be in a nice body then. That's 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 a very strong bridge to cross of understanding that death is only embracing all infinite possibilities. 
and that because your body is no longer serving. And then when you when that's the case, how do I navigate with my mind? And how am I able to? Am, am I sure that my mind will make the right choices in the in sort of in like? Am I conscious in a dream? And when I'm when I when I see a nightmare rising up in a dream, do I know how to deal with it in a dream to get past the nightmare? You know, there's a wonderful Tibetan story that I like that my friend Dr. Anita told me about. And this guy has a terrible time sleeping because he has a repeating dream where he's being chased by a monster. And he doesn't know what to do. And he tries different medicine. He goes everywhere, blah, blah, blah. Finally, he meets a sort of friendly guy, like a, a like a spiritual friend, like a teacher, who's not an authoritarian guy, but a teacher. And that teacher keeps saying to him, look, there's nothing I can tell you will help you. You just have to try to, instead of running away from that monster, just face the monster yes, yes. once and for all, and something, you know, maybe it'll work out, you know, but you, you can't keep running away. And so you, you have to sleep, and then when you sleep and the monster goes after you, face it. So finally, he, he keeps trying to do it, failing and running away, waking up sweating and heavily breathing. Finally, he turns around and he says to them, he, he faces that monster, and the monster pauses and chasing him because he faced it. Then he says to the monster, why are you chasing me all the time? <laughs> And the you know what the monster says? Yeah. I don't know. It's your dream. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's it, facing your inner demons, and you know and once you do, it's you realize they're just kittens. It's not a monster, and uh, you, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> says, I don't know. It's your dream. That's like the, now you have responsibility, or you have the agency, you have the freedom mm-hmm. to react by scaring and running away, or facing it and looking at it. So that's the issue about death. If we face death like that, and we realize that we can, it's it's our dream. And actually this leads to a practice that is a very important one that they have in all religious, the good side of spiritualities, which is learning to consciously dream, to develop lucid dreaming ability. And actually secularists and different psychological hospitals and things, they have developed abilities to teach people how to become a lucid dreamer, what they call a lucid dreamer. And that's really important. And I don't pretend I'm very good at it. I occasionally hit it, but most often I wake up remembering a dream. Oh, I wish I was still in there and I would have fixed this or changed that. And I failed, mostly. I don't pretend anything. But I, I, I have tasted it a little bit and it is really valuable. And it's a great step on the way to being lucidly awake mm-hmm. and being really awake while we're awake. And what I find fascinating, those who've had near-death experiences, they actually talk about it and it's very similar uh, and regardless of what the traditions is and the belief system is. And it's it's actually yeah. very positive. And they exactly. say it's a wonderful, loving, comfortable feeling. That's so right. Why are we worried about it if it's going to be fine? And uh, yeah. that resonates with me. Yeah. And the thing is, why do we say this life is suffering so my next life will be fine? I want this life to be joyful. I want this to be to be yeah. good. And yeah, well, happy. the only way to guarantee the next one will be joyful is to find the joy now. Exactly. exactly. And then you will, you will gravitate yeah. what will be joyful then. If you're only miserable now, you might go towards some defense thing or some deeper way of defending yourself and closing yourself more. Mm-hmm. And that will ensure that you're reborn in a more closed way, which will make you less capable of interacting effectively with the universe and whatever embodiment. You know, so yeah. being joyful now, which always comes from opening your heart. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the more, uh, and, and, the more you open, the more joyful. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and, and a beacon of, of joy and hope is, is always and has always been for me the Dalai Lama. And uh, you personally know him. So I'd like to know a bit about, uh, yeah, just oh, he's so the Dalai Lama. He, he's such a nice guy. I really love him. And what I love about him is also he doesn't try to trap you into sort of being dominated by him, which unfortunately a, number, a lot of spiritual teachers do. They unfortunately get stuck in the identity of being their great teacher. Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to kowtow to them in some way. And, and you never should unless you do truly feel great gratitude because someone has really made you more free. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's, it's a contradiction of someone who will demand some sort of obsequiousness and some sort of servility from people right away just because there's some sort of a guru. And he doesn't do that at all. He's completely normal. And I have a story I tell about him that I love. When I was in the early years, I guess I had known him at that point for about 16 years, from 64 to 80. This happened in 1980. And 1980, I spent a year around him, by, not as a monk anymore at that point, because by that time I had a family. I was an ex-monk. And I, I was leaving India at that time. I had to go back to work at the end of a sabbatical. I had to go back to work at my college. And I brought my four kids and wife in what's called the exit audience, you know, with a, in, the, in, the, in the culture around him. And um, then I wanted to be very formal because he is my teacher. And so, you know, I knew he doesn't like it. And normally when we would meet to work on some project, we're working on something, I'd just walk and say hi, and he'd say hi, and we'd just carry on like, uh, like colleagues. But I wanted to make a bow and I wanted to show to my children some sort of formal thing, you know, because they didn't meet him every day like that. And my wife told me, don't bother. He won't like it. He doesn't like that kind of formalities. And you know that he doesn't. So why are you bothering with that? Well, I really want to show the kids, you know, like I'm going like that. <laughs> the big righteous dad. You know? So then I go in and he's, I'm sure, clairvoyantly aware of all this discussion. Right? So he, as I approach him, I started to put fold my hands together like this. And I start the process of where you do a formal bow. And, you know, it's just like salam, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in Islamic culture, you know, that you do the same thing. I actually did my first salam full body prostration. I learned to do that in a teka in Damascus of Sheikh Abdullah Dagestani's teka in 1963 or 62, actually, when I spent a little time there. And that's the first place I learned to do a, a salam, you know. So, but anyway, so I start to do that. So he pretends, not only that I was only about to shake his hand. So he grabs the two hands with his right hand, and clasping it also in the left, and holds it there. So blocking my bow, actually, and what happens, I lose my balance, and I flop over on the floor. <laughs> and, then, and then he and my wife and the kids all laugh. And then everybody's having a hilarious moment where I'm flushed red, you know, like so embarrassed I did the wrong thing, you know, and a little bit flushed. And, and but everybody else is laughing madly. And then my wife sort of gives me the I told you so look. <laughs> and he had, I think he and she exchanged knowing glances, I imagine. I don't know really, because I'm trying to get up again, you know. And but it's a big laugh, and he said, let's all sit down, and you know, we're going to have tea together, because I had known him for 16 years at that time. And, and, uh, and then and we sort of got pet. <laughs> then we're all sitting down. 
And then suddenly there's this clanking, blanging noise in the room. And we look around. And the youngest one, who was two years old at the time, he starts swimming across the floor, like doing like the Australian crawl on a wooden floor of the room, because he thought that's what I was doing. And that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so he's going like clank, clank, like this, crawling across the floor, although he was walking very well by the time. And he'd been gestured to sit down. But, but instead, he's thinking that's the fun thing. Because that's what we all did when we were laughing. Instead of talking, it's boring to him, you know. <laughs> so we had another big laugh, you know. Yeah. But so that's something like about the Dalai Lama, how he's he has a little mischievous streak, yes. and he likes to keep for friendly, and he doesn't like to, he has, doesn't put any airs on, and he totally follows the thing. He says he he often in teachings likes to quote a particular verse, where the Buddha says to his mendicants, you know, the monks and nuns. He says, mendicants, a wise person only accepts something that someone else, some advice that another person gives them after measuring it, thinking it over, trying it out and experience. Like a goldsmith only buys gold in the market after melting it, cutting it, and rubbing it on a touchstone. And that doesn't just accept them as this is pure gold here, buy it. They don't do that. So that's the way you should listen to someone who says something to use it like that with your own critical thinking, with your own experiential experimentation, and putting it on the touchstone of what, what seems right to your intuitive insight. And, uh, and that's the way you should be. And don't just do it because you think somebody's so great, I'm going to listen to whatever they say, and I'm just going to actually be my new dogma. Yeah. And that's a verse, that's an ancient Buddhist verse. And he likes to recite that to them. And he reaches forward, I see you can see him when he's sitting on a teaching uh, chair, leaning forward and saying, please, therefore, think about what I'm saying. Reject it if you don't like it. So I was going to ask you a question, Arash, last question, you know, kind of, and that is, is there something you disagree with in the book that you read? Do you have any question that is like sort of critical or that you're chewing over or you're not sure about? I think you indicated, right, the four friendly fun facts. The first one is, if you're not awakened, you're going to, everything's going to be stressful. You know, things are never going to quite, everything doesn't quite fit in the samsara, you know. Yeah. And that's the first noble truth, which then caused people to misunderstand Buddha as a purveyor of misery, like all religions yeah. tend yeah. to be, you know, except for the mystic side of them. But they all tend to sort of rationalize misery. Whereas he's not only saying that because he discovered a way of being where everything is not suffering. So he's just saying, if you insist stubbornly on being right, or be rigidly into whatever your idea is, rather than being open to your experience, then you'll suffer, is why he said it. Mm -hmm. But do you still maybe a little bit uneasy with that first friendly, what, fun fact? What, yeah, one of the things I was thinking about, and I hadn't thought about it, that he had a son, and uh, that he left his son. So the idea of family, like being a potential hindrance, is yeah. something that has me a bit worried, because oh, okay. I love my son. Yes. Okay, so, good. so, so, um, is I mean, Jesus did the same thing with with his own folks, and that's fine. But they were not. He was not. It wasn't his child. And so, the idea of leaving, abandoning your your son, and I think his right. name was Rahula, right? Unwanted. Uh, right, and right, so, right. oh yeah, I, but... I have a problem with that. I know. <laughs> good. You are wonderful. But I don't really tell that story in that particular book. But that's good in general. So. That means that you retain a healthy suspicion of everything uh -huh. what Buddha says. Good. 
So, but what I'm saying there is, let me let me let's put it in a context. He told his dad too. He abandoned his dad. It was very harsh on him. It was much harder even on his dad than on his son, because his son was brought up as he had been brought up by lots of loving moms, and that that's almost more important to a kid for quite a while, you know. And he knew that. And his dad said, "Well, you can't go because." You know, now you had a son, and the Indian tradition then was when the crown prince has a son, then the father can abdicate and take a long term, can retire young, if they, you know, in those days, maybe in the 50s, and then really enjoy their elder time, go to an ashram, you know, and be more spiritual, be more relaxed and not have to sit in court and make decisions or even make war or, you know, all kinds of horrible duties that a leader has. And, uh, and the father was very anxious to retire, of course, with his wives uh, to his ashram and, and be, a, you know, a, a, you know, emperor in retirement happily, you know, king in retirement. And so the son said, well, dad, you told me, though, if I'm going to be a king, that a king has to solve the people's problems, right? Yes, son. Well, dad, I now have an understanding of what my people's problems are thanks to my wife who showed me a little more reality than you ever let me see by keeping me in my pleasure palace. And I noticed that people's realities are not really defense, health, education, and welfare. I mean, there are people taking care of those things, but that's not really the, what their real problems, their real problems are old age, death, the difficulties of life, especially death they're afraid of, deep sickness that can't be cured, and how to deal with it. And I believe there's a kind of way I can really help them with that. And he said, no, you can't. What are you even talking about? You want to be a priest, but you're not a priest. You're a prince. He said, no, I think the priests and the gods are not dealing with it to the people's satisfaction. They're telling them a story, but I don't think they really know how to handle it. And I think I can do better, he said. Mm -hmm. So then the dad did what they do in that circumstance. He, he locked him up, <laughs> called in the shrinks, <laughs> which were the Brahmin priests. And then he escaped. You know? So the idea was he, he didn't feel he was abandoning. He did. He felt there was something better for them than the ordinary life that they were living within the caste system, within the royal system, and, and in which his job would be commander in chief of the army, actually, because he was the warrior class, you know, which was actually the top power class, you know. So he left, you know. And uh, he sought his way and took him some years because of the backwardness of his culture. And then he finally, but then he finally became enlightened. And then apparently he helped everyone extremely well. And then there's a famous story about when he came back after about 10 years, when he was already a, a grand master, you could say, you know, but uh, freeing people, though, not just domineering them with a new cult, a new, a new verminical cult, ordering them but really creating an institution for them to educate themselves to be free. And people were dropping out of all castes, and he accepted plenty of people from lower castes, and even accepted women, which at first was very stressful to the patriarchal society that he was in. And, um, they were, and women were so grateful. And um, so then he came back, and at that point, his wife didn't come to teach, the only person in the whole kingdom didn't come to teach, to, to his teaching. And he didn't let the son go either. And the son was like a teenager, like a teen, like you say, you know, looking for his values. And he wanted to go, but she wouldn't let him. So finally, he said, Mom, look, everybody's going and hearing Dad teach. And I, you got to let me go. Come on. 
And finally, she said, okay, I'll let you go on one condition. And he said, well, what is that? And he said, I'll let you go on the condition that you ask him after the teaching, go up to him, be brave, go up to him and say, I'm your son, Rahula. Can I have my inheritance, please? <laughs> and of course, Buddha was a propertyless mendicant, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was a little barb in that because, and actually when he left in quoting all the stories, she was, you know why she was mad? Not because he abandoned the child. She was mad because she couldn't go with him. She wanted, if he wanted to, and she was the one actually who had showed him in some versions of the story, she was the one who had showed him the sick guy, the old guy, the dead body, and the, and the, and the ascetic, the, the seeker of, you know, the Sufi, the seeker of enlightenment, the four visions, you know, that, that got him out of the pleasure palace, you know, the unrealistic pursuit of, of ordinary egocentric pleasure. So he didn't see pleasure. So he goes and he listens to his dad and he's thrilled, he's excited. The end he goes up, he says, oh, Mr. Shakyamuni, Mr. Buddha, I'm actually your son, Rahula. And I, I apologize for what I'm about to say to you, but I promised my mom I would. He says, oh, it's okay, you can say anything, whatever you like. He says, could I please have my inheritance? <laughs> so then Buddha says, okay, come here, mendicant. He says, ehi bhikkhu. He says, come here, mendicant. And then the son walks toward his dad like he's going to get a hug. And when he comes into where the shadow of the sun, the shadow, his father, he's in his father's shadow, he attains nirvana oh. automatically. Yeah. It's a, the field is so powerful. And of course, his previous karma from previous, I mean, they have lots of other ways of explaining it. Mm -hmm. But it, I mean, he really finds freedom and he attains a higher perception of things. And he feels like bliss welling up inside him and so on. So then Buddha said, and, and he becomes a mendicant automatically. He, he joins the movement. And the dad says to him, how's that for an inheritance? And he, that's great, he says. <laughs> but then he says, and then he already, because he becomes what they call an arhat, a free person, one who has conquered the enemy of suffering. He then said, and then therefore considerate of others, intensified. He then says, but listen, dad, you know something, mom, is really stuck and isn't coming to see you. So I think we should go see her. Never mind you're the head monk and a mendicant or whatever. We can go we can go see her, your ex, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I have been wanting to do that, Buddha then says. And then they do go see her. And then they have a nice conversation. And she 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 tells her complaint that he didn't take her along. And he says, Well, you know, you 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 probably didn't need that. You probably know yourself. Whatever he gives her, he gives her wisdom as bliss. Yeah. teaching of yeah. some sort, much better than I'm doing it, really able to do it. And then she and his foster mother, uh, Prajapati, Mahaprajapati, they are the two ladies who really push to have the female mendicant community accepted by the society. In other words, they make Buddha speak to the patriarchs, to his, to his father, the king, and to everybody else. We're really going to seriously have female mendicants because there had been some trepidation about doing that because, you know, the one slave that the patriarchal household doesn't want to let go of is the mom, mm -hmm. because she bears the children, she cooks the food, she plants things, she weeds the garden, she cleans the house, <laughs> she does all the essential work to making life possible, actually, for everybody, right? And they, and patri highly male chauvinist societies, they, they don't want to have to pay her the price, you know? 
So that's just, those are the stories about it. But it, of course, it's a problem. And there are some, like the next Buddha, supposedly, who comes on earth, Maitreya, who's called the loving one. He doesn't have to leave for six years because he's, he's in a time in the planet that it's much more civilized and the culture is better. And he just, he gets, he, he just is transferred. He steps out of his role as a Brahmin, not a warrior, Kshatriya, you know, not the military class, but the priest class. And he, he receives the sacrificial post from his father, a jewel post. He shatters the post because he's not going to sacrifice anything anymore. And he gives shards of the jewel to everybody else. And he, and he uh, attains enlightenment immediately, like in one day. So they don't, I don't know, but I bet they do, but actually I'm ignorant of the story. I don't know whether he might, he must have had a family as a regular police class guy. So he doesn't have to leave the family in other words. Okay. So that's a more ideal thing. Mm. Buddha, Buddha sort of had to leave it maybe because the family was where you were kind of trapped in a militaristic male chauvinist society. And it's important that that to open that society, this was necessary. Mm -hmm. who, who else leaves and abandons their ch children, by the way, normally and considered fine in societies? Mm -hmm. Can you answer that question for me? I'm not sure. Soldiers do. Soldiers, right. Okay. Yeah. And, they, and they go and join the army, and then they go and they're ready to die. Mm -hmm. And they often do, actually, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's something I would never and do. They completely I mean, abandon the family, right? And not only that, yeah. but they destroy other people's families, yeah. and it's really and so the soldier does that. And don't don't forget, Buddha was raised and trained to be a general soldier, mm -hmm. so he realized to overcome the militaristic, patriarchal, casteist society, there had to be a kind of military adventure that was nonviolent, mm -hmm. where the enemy was the inner ignorant being, and where people put the full militancy and sort of life and death commitment to transforming and conquering their own harmful habit, which was ingrained in them by society. So the need for the monastic is sort of like an inter internalized military, you could say. And actually, I did a lot of studies in my academic career, where I invited Christian priests and Sufis and all sorts of people about about monasticism and all of the founders of monastic orders east and west uh were ex-military people actually usually mm -hmm. and they were and therefore they created an institution in the middle of uh, knights in armor and conquering hordes and whatever it is of people who would rather you know i as i tend to put it in my sort of millennial thinking mm -hmm. When you have more people in a society willing to die not to kill another person, in other words, put their life on the line in non for nonviolence, then are willing to die to kill another person, then you have peace in the world. And that's the, that's the transition we're facing today, actually, mm -hmm. in this day of yet another huge military failure, you know, that we're seeing, mm -hmm. which is another failure. You know, and the way of life, once you have a militaristic external society, your internal one will be a police state, of course, because that's the internal military. And then people will be have a policing on their own original sin. And and they will be beating up their women huh. and not paying their salaries. And so the planet is at this great time, actually. I'm very, I'm very millennial and optimistic about it. 
where since the World War, even since Gandhi, it's been obvious to everyone that war is completely impossible and no one can win it. And there's even a great book. Do you know Jonathan Shell's book? Did you ever hear of Jonathan Shell? He's a, he was a great writer. I think he maybe is. I keep, I keep forgetting whether he's passed or not, but he's a little older than me. But he's, he was a great writer and he wrote a wonderful book called The Unconquerable World, Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People. Okay. And it's really a really wonderful book. And it has nothing to do with Gandhi or Buddhism or any theory of nonviolence. It begins with an analysis of von Clausewitz. I don't know if you know, he's a theorist of war from Prussia, you know, in the 1930s or something, which is sort of the, the political science people, sort of Machiavellian, modern, you know, that's the theory of war. War is diplomacy by other means. You know, you beat the other guy's army. Then you make the other guy's country do something subservient to you, you know, in a deal you couldn't make as a diplomat, you know, and then and the end of it is the war and then you win the battle, you know, you don't even necessarily exterminate all the other troops, you just get them to surrender, right, and then the other people have to sow something for you or give you their, their give you their resources at a cheaper price or whatever it is, you know, well, now, what's the theory of war, you can't go to war, Powell doctrine, unless you're ready to destroy the other country completely. <laughs> and who's going to do your bidding and what benefit do you get out of that? None, right? So then you have terrorists after you, in fact, because they're so pissed off they've lost their family or their land or their house or their whatever, or their leg or whatever it is. So in other words, war no longer has a useful purpose, mm -hmm. right? But- It's a cycle, yeah. Yeah, but- the people who used to have power that way are not willing to give up. Like Russia said, fuck it. You know, actually Russia, you know, under the czars, I don't know if you know that. Under the czars, the Russians in 1907, they said, we're sick of international war. And they called for some big conference in The Hague. And they said, no more wars. We're not doing them anymore. Oh, but forget yeah. about it. Huge Russia, you know. Yeah, yeah. They did. And then, you know, who screwed them up? some stupid American admiral and some British guy and some oh French God. guy, they went in there and they torpedoed that. It was a big international disarmament thing. He tried to summon everybody to at The Hague. And it's a big, Russia is a big country, so the people came. But then those Western people, the imperialists at the time, right? They, they blew up the idea. It's interesting, Russia was a leader there, you know? It's interesting, actually. And then, of course, they reproduced, then instead of communism, they reproduced the czar you know, with the Bolsheviks, and then, and then, and then they blew that up with Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin, and then KGB reasserted itself through Putin, and now the all the former KGB people are the oligarchs. Mm -hmm. So those people, point of view, are not letting go. It's like here, the Pentagon in America, the Pentagon and the defense contractors and the paid-off politicians won't quit. Even though they totally lost Vietnam, they bombed the living crap out of the whole place, but they totally lost. They could never manage Afghanistan because they were too stupid to deal with the reality of Afghanistan. And um, and the Pakistanis defeated them. As I, I love that. I, I mean, I don't love it, but General Gould, you know what he said? Did you, did you no, read that? I don't know. General Gould said, America is great, but Allah is greater. He said, first, the Americans paid us to destroy the Russians in Afghanistan. 
And then the Americans kept paying us to destroy the Americans. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that the whole time. You know, the, the you know, Taliban would have been, you know, originally were pumped up by us to go attack religious fanatically the Russians. And then they turned against us when we occupied the country. But actually, people who helped the Northern Alliance get rid of Al Qaeda and so forth after they bombed us, you know, Bin Laden, and no Afghanis were on those planes, all Saudis. Hmm. Anyway, they do that. Then, uh, then uh, the, the the special ops people who were there told their superiors at the Pentagon or wherever, "Don't occupy this country. If you occupy it, then you're the bad guys again. No matter what you're doing." Just because you're occupying them. They don't like to be occupied and nobody does. Mm -hmm. And did they listen? No. And then this is the result. 20 years later and $3 trillion and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, I'm coming. I'm not finished quite. We're almost done. And uh, and uh, I know I'm off the topic. You don't need to use all this, you know. But, but you know, this is, I want people to cheer up. And militarism and police state behavior, it doesn't cheer anybody up. Mm -hmm. Yes. And 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 also not respecting the women doesn't cheer anybody up, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And uh, pink supremacy, what I call. Mm -hmm. I don't call it white supremacy. There's no white people. Mm -hmm. They're pink. Mm -hmm. What? So, white pink? No, you're not white, and I'm not white. We're pink. Our faces are pink. I see. Right? Yeah. If we're white, that's because we're terrified. <laughs> yeah. You're not white when we see a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, people, are, a... people are seeing ghosts. We're pink people, and most of those pink people are in search of a tan. Mm -hmm. So they'd yeah. like to be brown. They'd like to be a POC, you know, person of color. But yeah. they're pink, is what they are. Yeah. I said that's that's my message to the proud boys. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> I I want to I want to finish on a definition okay. of the world uh, of the word uh, Buddhism, and I might blush here. Oh yeah, um, can you, let's finish on a high note and a climax. And so, can you just uh, well, tell everyone what you did? Yeah, you know, I'm purposely connecting it to that yes. because you know who I love. You you said you had your tour with Freud and everybody, yes. and you like you love them, and I like them too. Freud and Jung and their successors, and I uh, actually DJ Winnicott. Do you know him? No. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, Winnicott. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and Mark Epstein, yeah. current guy, my neighbor here. He is so great. He's the apostle of Winnicott. And he's a Buddhist, uh, you know, he's a mindfulness mm. Buddhist type Buddhist uh, psychiatrist. He's so great. If you don't know his book uh, called, uh, 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 what do you call the teachings not given or something like that. Mm. Advice not given, how to get over yourself. Mm. He has a great book, his latest book. He's writing another one now, but that's a really great psych book if you like psych books. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is my, I love Wilhelm Reich. When I was a kid, before I even knew Buddhism, I loved Wilhelm Reich. Mm -hmm. And Wilhelm Reich, you know, his great, great book was The Function of the Orgasm, <laughs> as a psychologist. Yeah. But his definition of it, although, was not what we normally think of in normal procreative sexuality, actually. It was not. And he didn't know about Tantra, and he didn't know about, you know, sort of advanced high yogas and blah, 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 which I, I absolutely don't want to get into now. But he didn't know about that. But yet he said... What he called orgasmic potency is someone who's so open in their own inner uh, sensitivity that they feel a streaming when they connect or they become nearby and they go in a dyad with a, someone of the opposite sex. 
and they don't do the sort of thrusting and you know huffing and puffing. They just lie tenderly and gently together. You know, they don't have the sort of struggle kind of aspect so much or at all. I don't know. I, don't, I forget. He doesn't really give detail, but they just lie. And then if they lie in a certain way, observing each other with peacefully, eventually both become enfolded in a blue energy, which he calls orgone energy, which he called. And they are completely transported into rapture, the two of them, but full body. In other words, they feel it at the, all over their body rather, not just sort of what the psychologists call genitally organized orgasm. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that is uh, something that their advanced inner deep meditations that the Indians developed and the Tibetans followed because you have to realize they were so much less prudish than all more, more, because they became less militaristic because of Buddha, their greatest general in the ancient time became a general of the monastics and nonviolent people created a nonviolent army inside their country, which ultimately made them vulnerable for about a thousand years. But, but they then produced Gandhi, you know, mm -hmm. although now they're still, now they have weapons and they're, you know, there's a mixed bag at the moment, you know, mm -hmm. but they'll get there, I think, because that, that is the message that's answered to the planet. It relates to democracy and women and, um, you know, the non-subservience of women. And anyway, so that's Wilhelm Reich, you know, and so that's what I'm in. So Buddhism is when one has a freedom feeling. And, then, and then, oh yeah, then he had a concept called the emotional plague, because he lived in Germany in the, in the, in the same time as Freud. And I think he was a little younger. He was a student of Freud and a colleague, a contemporary of Jung. And then you know, he saw the destruction of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism and fascism in Spain and Italy. And then he thought the Bolsheviks for a while were going to be liberated. And then they became fascist, you know, they turned Russia back to, to, to fascism under a new name, although they were they killed the czar, but then they became new czars. And then he came to America and then the McCarthy era and the rise of white supremacy and stuff, you know, the the basically the slave mentality is still in America, you know, they started getting after him. And so he called that the emotional plague. And he connected it to a kind of most brilliant analysis of military posture, how a soldier is trained with the chin rammed down on the throat, the diaphragm imprisoned by the stomach sucked in very tightly, and the pelvis retracted, pulled back to prevent streaming, internal streaming, since it's, you know, blissful, happy streaming. Hmm. And in order to feel armored, what he called it, neuromuscular armoring, to armor them against sensations of empathy and sensitivity, to enable them to be brutal and violent and kill, you know, and kill an old woman. Whereas they 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 start out before they were recruits, where they wouldn't harm their grandmother, but now they're ready to shoot some village woman, you know, if you know, in case you might have a bomb under her cassock or whatever over over her. Know, under her shawl or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. but still it's a, a violent, brutal thing. So he calls that the emotional plague. And he says, anybody with that emotional plague who doesn't develop psychology to open up the internal nervous system, that person wants fascism in a country and they want a fascist type authority so that everybody is armored against everybody and et cetera, you know, and then they of course want to rise in the pecking order, you know, so they, they beat more people than they get beaten by, but they, they fit into that. You know, and it's really brilliant. And you know, I really like that guy. And he, mm -hmm. I'm sure he's the reincarnation of some Tibetan yogi or Indian yogi. I have absolutely no doubt. You know? 
really. Yeah. And um, and uh, so that's where Buddhism comes from. And also from Buddhist Tantra, where they do a kind of Reikian therapy through meditative practice, and they kind of open up the inner feeling. And one finds that bliss, that there's an inner bliss through sublimation, you know, and, and, and that's another reason why it's necessary for people who have that emotional plague to leave the family. Because in the family, they're going to reproduce the pattern that they inherited from the father mm -hmm. in the patriarchal, militarized society family. You know, he doesn't mind what religion it is. They'll make whatever religious ideology fit with that, that domineering, domination type of pattern, you know. And that's been going on for 5,000 years, and all kinds of religions have not. have some The, the founders, people like Jesus, like the great Sufis, like, uh, like Mansur al-Haq, that guy, or, you know, they get wasted by the authoritarians, of course. They get sacrificed by them because they don't like them telling people, look, you can be free. You don't have to march in the army. You know? That's what they always tell people. And then, they, then the authority doesn't like them saying that. So they, they destroy them. The Romans, you know, destroyed Jesus, not the Jews. The Romans. He was a Jewish rabbi. A great one. And the Romans killed him. So, so anyway... So, uh, so that Buddhism, that's what I mean. Thank you so much for Because when you sublimate those energies, you know, you find every, every male has a female side, actually. Yes. Every absolutely. female has a male it's side. Tao. I mean, that, I think it's, it's, it's both. I mean, that's in, in harmony. Yeah. That's so what there's we want. a kind of inner release. There are inner releases mm -hmm. of self-confining and self-constricting neural patterns that prevent one from feeling anything, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And therefore you get a phenomenon like our current non-president who just occupied our White House by confusion, mm -hmm. <laughs> by the force of confusion, but never really served because he didn't understand what he was supposed to be doing, serving others, you know, because he was unable to, because he doesn't, but that's why he grabbed so many females proudly because he couldn't, he didn't know what to do with any one of them. Because he couldn't feel anything in himself, but he was desperate to try. Mm -hmm. So he thought power would do it. But that doesn't do it ever. It makes it worse. Mm -hmm. The more people want from you, and then you're incapable of doing anything to them because you feel you've got nothing yourself. So that makes you completely hopeless. And th that guy never took any oath of office. People don't realize that. Do you, uh, you don't watch American politics, I know. Yeah. I hope in, up there you're safe yeah. in Canada. Yeah. But, but, you know... He, he, people now should reflect. You know, they, they are all against him because he's not accepting this, this election result. But he said he wouldn't accept the first election result unless he won, remember? Mm -hmm. So he's not, he never thought to uphold democracy and that's the job of a president. Mm -hmm. So there he never was one. He just moved, into, moved his business into the house, mm -hmm. which shouldn't be white anyway. It's pink. It should only be a pink house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for such a stimulating and wonderful discussion <laughs> and food for thought. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to veer into politics, Absolutely. but for me it's not veering because mm -hmm. inner freedom means we must be devoted to outer freedom. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And, you know, I, th I don't mind those guys. They think they're, they're seeking freedom by not getting vaccinated, isn't that? And it's just a confusion, you know. You know, they would be more free if they did get backs, but never mind, let them try to be free. And, but and they, yeah, but if, right. when their freedom is harmful to other people, it is kind of too bad. So they're 
they should they should have to pay a little bit of a price like they like Macron just did. They can't go to the cafe. Which they they, the French people who love their cafe, eight million of them went out and got injected. Yes. That's how it works. And the, the idea of freedom is just misunderstood by many. They think they're free, but they're enslaved. They're actually it, it, more they enslaved than others. To be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And then you can't enjoy if you're harming somebody else. So that's mm-hmm. easy. Mm-hmm. Okay, listen, love you. I love you, Arash. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. This was I'm, sorry that I I'm sorry that I can't translate it into Farsi. <laughs> I wish that's I could okay. write wisdom is bliss. How, what, how would you say wisdom is bliss in Farsi? How would you say that? Uh, that's a good. Actually, it's it's uh, for me. It's Farsi is actually a language that I know least of the ones that I know. I, I grew up. There. I mean, I was born there, but I didn't grow up there. Oh, so uh, you don't know the language? Shuma Farsi Baladine. Yekam. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> but sir, but thank but you so much. It's such a I pleasure. really love the Persian people. You know, the Persian people are really not sweet, you know, and they are totally interrelated with the Indian people from ancient mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And there was really no barrier between them, you know, and even the Achaemenids never had felt they had to go and beat up the Indians. They didn't try even, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they went west to the more rough people on their western frontier, you know, and uh, south, you know, but they never bothered to mess with the Indians. Because they were importing all kinds of goodies from there, so why bother to conquer it? You know? And the Indians liked them. In fact, there's a story that Bimbisara, the king of Magadha and the seed of the Mauryan Empire, uh, after Alexander, he made the first painting of the Buddha during his life, which you know some people don't agree that think it's a myth. Might be, oh. but I believe it's real. And he painted that and to send to his friend who was the you know, the Achaemenid, I don't know which Xerxes or Darius or Darius the second, to send him a picture because he knew he would never come to India to see the Buddha. So he sent him a, pay, a portrait of the Buddha. He thought he might enjoy seeing the Buddha. We had looking E.T. Conehead Buddha. <laughs> and that's a cute story, which I like. Okay, listen, all the best. Thank you very much. It was Thank such you. a pleasure. It. Take care. And, all uh, the best to you. Let Thank me know you when much. you publish it or whatever you do. I will send you the link. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.